Oh, aren't emotions fun? If you've never seen the movie Inside Out, I highly, highly recommend it. That's a clip from the beginning of the movie. And uh, I've been here a little over a year. I've I don't think I've ever recommended a movie um, before, but this one is worth watching, it's worth renting, it's worth buying and watching over and over again. Um, And it's a great introduction to our new series here uh, titled All the Feels, and that's, uh, that's kind of some modern phrasing to put to something that makes you feel a variety of emotions at the same time. Um, I see it more on social media than anything else. Uh, But it's the idea that, you know, this series is rooted in the idea that emotions are with us all the time. They show up early and often, and they can be very, very strong at times. Um, And I came across another image that just kind of, you know, these are cute and funny when they're on the face of a little child. You put them on the face of your spouse or or a co-worker or your boss, and some of them aren't quite as as adorable. Uh, But but we have these emotions, and we have them throughout our lives. And one of the most important aspects of our being is our emotions, is our feelings. They play a vital role in our survival and in the ability to thrive, um, and they can be very difficult to understand at times. Another thing that's really interesting about emotions is you can, you can take me apart, you could dissect me down to the cellular level, and you will never find an emotion. You will find all kinds of different building blocks of humanity, but you'll never find a feeling. You'll never find an emotion, and yet they play this crucial, crucial role in our lives, in our interactions with each other, in our interactions with God. And uh, if we're not careful, we can either have what I would call an a lack of emotional awareness, where we kind of discount emotions and we shove them to the side and we don't really engage them all that much, or we can be a little overactive and overfeeling in our emotions. And there are different uh, psychological tests that, you know, determine are you a high thinker or high feeler. And, and I actually utilize those on a regular basis in premarital counseling because I know from my own uh, relationships, as well as walking through a lot of other people's marriage relationships, it's not uncommon for one or the other people to be very high on the emotional scale and the other to be quite a bit lower and and much more on the thinking side of things. And so there can be a lot of room in between those two for friction and tension and conflict if the one who's very high emotionally comes across as melodramatic to the one that's much lower emotionally who comes across as a cold jerk to the higher emotional person. And you can see how that crazy cycle can just spin. So, so there's, there's problems on both sides, whether we're over-emotional or under-emotional or our emotions swing back and forth and, and high and low and so on and so forth. And each person probably has a natural tendency, one direction or the other, but things can trigger us and make us move in one direction or another very quickly. And so that's why we're doing a series on emotions, and I chose to root it in the book of Psalms, that we'll be looking at a psalm or two each week as we go through this. And one of the reasons for that is a quote that I had run across a couple of years ago, and uh, it basically pointed out that most of Scripture— Most of the Bible, particularly the Old Testament, is God talking to people. But when we get to Psalms, it turns, and most of the Psalms are people talking to God. 
And as you walk through the Psalms, if you read through them systematically, you'll uncover almost every emotion known to humans uh, in the book of Psalms. In fact, when people come to me sometimes and they're really struggling with something, and I'll ask them, what are you feeling right now? What do you feel in those situations? What do you feel? And they say, I don't really know. That's the thing. I can't quite put my finger on it. I'll suggest an exercise where they just pick up the book of Psalms and they start reading until they get to an emotion that resonates with them deeply. And then write that out and then write out some response to it. And it can be an incredibly helpful exercise when you just can't quite put your, your, your finger on the emotion that you're feeling. Reading through Psalms can bring some of those emotions to mind. And so today's message will be a little bit more of an introductory message or build a framework for the remainder of the series. And as we go through the series, we'll look at some of the core emotions uh, like joy and fear and sadness and anger that were part of the clip that we watched. We'll also look at some secondary emotions like gratitude and affection and respect that sort of maybe blend a couple of them together or have different emotions uh, or motivations, I should say, that are tied behind them. But today's message is, is titled Feeling Well. And it's sort of a play on words in a couple of ways. Uh, it, it's, it's, we talk about the well of emotions or emotions welling up within us. So there's that well concept of the physical noun of a well. But there's also this idea of how we are feeling or what we are feeling. Are we feeling well and healthy today? They used to ask me that when I donate plasma. They'd say, are you feeling well and healthy today? And I always thought it was a little redundant because can you be feeling well if you're not feeling healthy? And can you be feeling healthy if you're not feeling well? Um, and do they really care about my emotional state if I'm going to give plasma? But that's irrelevant. But you can feel in a way that is healthy and brings about positive things, or you can feel in a way that is negative and brings about negative way, things. So there's that aspect of feeling well, and there's the idea that positive emotions generally bring about better things than negative emotions. So we want to, if we can, gear our emotions towards being productive for the, the things of God. And so uh, that's kind of our, our idea here, and, and I i got to share with you why this matters so much. And I spent the whole week trying to articulate why this matters so much. And I tried a couple of things and finally settled on one that I wasn't really happy with. And then this morning in my devotional reading, and I've been reading this uh, New Morning Mercies, a daily gospel devotional by Paul Tripp. It's a book that I would recommend to you if you're looking for a devotional. Each one's just a page. And wouldn't you know it, on April 28th, April 28th, the day that I'm starting a series on emotions, and I've been struggling all week to articulate why this matters so much and why we should spend a series going through it. At the top of the page, it says, Today the true love of your heart will be revealed by what you grieve and what you celebrate. This idea that grieving something or celebrating something is an emotional response. And the things that we grieve and the things that we celebrate reveal what is truly at our heart level, the thing that we love the most. And I was like, that's it. That's, that's why this matters. That's why our emotional response and our willingness to take that emotional response to God matters so much because it begins to reveal what is our true love and what is really at the heart. And then he asked a question that I didn't like as much. It, it was a little convicting, to be honest. So I thought, why don't I share that with everybody? Since it convicted me so much, why don't I share that with you? Maybe God will convict you as well, right? That's what you get to do when you're a pastor. Um, but the question was, how much of your joy, celebration, grief, or anger in the last several weeks had anything whatsoever to do with the kingdom of God? What's your true love? 
Now, fortunately, uh, that question hit me the week after Easter, and so most of my real celebrations and the things that I had grieved were very closely tied to the kingdom of God. Uh, that's not always the case. I don't want to present myself as, as someone who only ever celebrates the good things that happen in the kingdom of God and only ever grieves the bad things that happen in the kingdom of God because I have my own little kingdom that I get wrapped up in sometimes. And sometimes the reason it was a good week is simply because nobody got in my way and nothing went wrong for me and my little kingdom and the things that I want and, and need in life. Other times, it's a really bad week. And it has nothing to do with the kingdom of God. It has everything to do with the kingdom of Mark not going really well and things getting in my way and things being difficult. But that question, how much of your joy, celebration, grief, or anger in the last several weeks had anything to do with the kingdom of God? I was able to say, you know what? This past couple of weeks have been pretty focused on the resurrection of Jesus Christ, pretty focused on his kingdom. We talk in church world that the Easter is kind of like the Super Bowl. It's kind of like the biggest weekend. Everything points to it, and, and Holy Week points to it. And there was so much to celebrate last week. There was so much to celebrate in the week before that. There were so many positive things, and, and so many people responded. And so I had so many things to celebrate there, and yet my, my, the things that I grieved last week were also wrapped up in that because I was, I was disappointed. I was saddened that more people weren't at the Monday Thursday service, that more people didn't stay for foot washing, that more people didn't come to the prayer. There were these great rich experiences that were available that very few people came to. And to be, I'll just be honest, there were over 100 empty seats on Easter Sunday. And that grieved that. That made me sad. Because just a week before, I had picked up over 200 invite cards that got left behind. And I thought if, everybody, if, if those 200 invite cards had gone out, maybe those seats wouldn't have been empty on Easter Sunday. Maybe some other people would have experienced what we got to experience. And so I'm not saying this to put guilt or shame or anything. It's not like that. It's just that those were the things that I grieved last week. Those were the things that made, made me sad. And so... It's a good question to ask, what, why, what am I feeling? Why am I feeling it? Whose kingdom is at stake as I have this emotional response to that circumstance? And so that'll kind of be a thread that we'll weave through uh, each week as we, as we um, walk through this. Uh, but I also want to talk about when we think about feeling well and we think about our emotional response to various circumstances, I've talked about the two, uh, the two sort of ends of the continuum. And, and I'll often say balance is that thing we pass through on the way from one extreme to another, right? There's two extremes. There's never feeling anything and totally discounting emotions. And there's feeling everything and feeding those emotions and being led around like we're on a leash by our emotions. So somewhere in between is probably what health looks like, right? And, uh, and I was reading uh, The Road Less Traveled by M. Scott and was reminded of this analogy that he gives, that emotions should be sort of like employees in a business or servants in a household, that, that we're their boss and we don't totally neglect them or they just sit around and do nothing and serve no real purpose, but we also make sure that we don't dominate them or let them dominate us, that we don't become uh, the, the slave to our emotions and only go where our emotions tell us to go and only do what our emotions tell us to do. So, so there's a balance there between the two, almost like we're their supervisor. And we'll see this when we get into to the psalm that we're going to look at today, this idea of evaluating our emotions much the way that a supervisor would evaluate an employee. So you reward the good ones, you correct the misguided ones, and you fire the bad ones. 
And sometimes we need help with this. That's why uh, therapy can be really, really helpful. They can help us see that there are certain emotions that are not serving us well. There are certain emotions that need to be corrected, certain emotions that maybe need to be fired, and we put them on probation for a while or something like that. Other emotions are very helpful, and they're very positive, and they're rooted in truth and reality, and they serve us well and move us towards the right things. But this process helps us to right-size our emotions and helps us to right-size our problems so that we don't minimize our emotions or maximize our emotions. We don't minimize our problems or maximize our problems. We seek to right-size our problems. And as I was thinking about that, I was reminded of the serenity prayer. How many of you have the serenity prayer on your wall or in a Bible or somewhere? You've probably seen it or heard it. If you haven't, it's a simple little prayer that's been attributed to Reinhold Niebuhr. And it says, God grant me the grace to accept with serenity the things that I cannot change. The courage to change the things that I should and the wisdom to know the difference. Now, for me, I think it should be called the wisdom prayer because wisdom is where the rubber meets the road. I don't always get it right. Sometimes I accept with serenity things that I really ought to be busy changing. And other times, I fire off courageously into things that I really have no business being involved in. And in both cases, it brings a lot of emotional turmoil and emotional pain. But when I'll apply this to a certain problem or to a certain emotion, and I'll say, God, Grant me the grace to accept with serenity the things that I cannot change. Is this one of those? Or do I need to be asking you for the courage to change the thing that I should change? Please give me the wisdom to know the difference. That can be a really, really helpful prayer to meditate on, to reflect on, to repeat on a regular basis. But right now I want to ask you to turn to Psalm 42. So if you have one of the blue hardcover Bibles that's in a seat in front of you, that's on page 881. Uh, Psalms are usually right around the middle of your Bible, uh, maybe just left of the middle. And what's interesting about the Psalms is that they're traditionally understood to be songs. Many of them are told that we're told that they're a certain type of song, maybe a maskil or something like that, that, that were used in Hebrew worship throughout time. This is sort of like the hymn book of the Hebrew people. And when we read these psalms, they give us some tremendous insight into our emotional responses. Uh, they give us tremendous insight into how to deal with emotion and how to take emotion to God, just the way that music does today. I mean, I was so touched as we were singing that last song before. I mean, I was crying. I was glad I had a three-minute video to kind of mop everything up and, and get up here before because the music and the, the, the meter of the words and the, and the poetic phrasing of it all works together to elicit an emotional response. And so when you read the Psalms, you have to understand that th- these were their worship songs. We're reading them in prose or we're reading them, you know, without music to them. But the basis of so much of Christian worship are the Psalms. And so we see that and we see emotion rooted in much of what uh, what, we, what we see in the book of Psalms. So I'm going to read this all the way through and kind of point out some different emotions as we go along, and then I'll back up and we'll walk through and pay attention to a couple things that we see in these verses that are particularly important. So Psalm 42 says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. There's emotions of desire and longing. Uh, when, I, when can I go and meet with God? My tears have been my food day and night. There's sorrow and maybe regret. 
While men say to me all day long, where is your God? Perhaps that's pointing to feelings of, of embarrassment or, or shame or doubt. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving, and there's happiness as I went among the festive throng. So why are you so downcast, O my soul? Downcast points to depression or or deep, deep sorrow. Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him my Savior and my God. There's celebration and worship represented there. My soul is downcast within me, therefore I will remember you from the land of the Jordan, from the heights of Hermon, from Mount Mizar. Deep calls to deep in the roar of your waterfalls. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. There's a gravity to this. This is serious, serious stuff. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? There's disappointment. Why must I go about in mourning, in deep, deep sorrow, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony. My foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? There's the shame. There's the embarrassment. There's the fear. There's the anxiety. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. So in the first couple of verses, we see this physical response. It talks about a deer panting for water as, as the psalmist's soul pants for God. And there's, there's that panting, that thirst that's referenced in verse 2, that my soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When can I go and meet with him? And you see thirst is a physical response to a physical reality. But soul thirst, soul thirst is a spiritual response to a spiritual reality, to this longing for God, this, this idea that, that, that thirst points to something that, that hunger doesn't. You see, thirst appears before hunger appears. You go a couple hours without food, you're probably going to be just fine, not even notice it. You go a couple hours without water, especially if you're already dehydrated a little bit, you're going to feel that. You're going to be thirsty. In fact, if you go a few days without water, that thirst will be at the, at the, the level of, of an absolute physical necessity. I must get water now. So thirst, I think, points to this, this idea that it's, it's stronger than hunger. You'll die faster without water than you'll die without food. Our bodies can store calories and energy to convert uh, to, to energy much easier than they can store the amount of water that we would need. That's why we have to constantly be drinking and drinking and getting more uh, of that water in. And so I think these first two vo- verses, he's saying, when can I go and meet with God again? I think this is pointing to the, to the necessity of corporate worship, to the importance of corporate worship, because corporate worship is where we come together and, and we have unity one with another and we express the things that are going on in our lives together and we sing our praise to God and we unite in that and we find that we are not alone in corporate worship. We find that we are not alone, that there are others maybe who are struggling. There are others who are on the way up or who are on the mountaintop. And and wherever we are, when we come together and worship corporately, we find others who are going through the same things that we are. We can bear one another's burden. We can multiply our joys and divide our sorrows. Then in verse 4, he talks about remembering what it was like to lead the procession. He says, these things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I used to go with the multitude, leading the procession to the house of God with shouts of joy and thanksgiving among the festive throng. 
He's remembering a time when he was really, really close, a time when he was involved in corporate worship, even leading corporate worship, and now he's much farther away. In fact, we're told that, that uh, he's in the land of Jordan and Hermon, and that's uh, separated, physically separated from Jerusalem, physically separated from the place where he was. And sometimes physical separation or separation in time can accentuate the feelings that we have, the longing that we have, the, the desire that we have to, to reconnect to God, to reconnect to a person, to experience something again, to experience something anew. But verse 5 is really the central verse, the kind of the key verse, verse 5 and 6, because this is where the proactive element takes place. In verse 5, the psalmist says, Why are you so downcast, O my soul? Why are you so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. Now, it's basically a conversation that he's having with his soul. And he's not crazy. All right, you can do this. This is okay. I choose to do it mostly on paper. I write little provocative questions to myself, and then I try to answer those provocative questions. But this is a powerful question. Why are you so downcast, O my soul? And the real power comes when you seek to answer the question and you start to say, why am I feeling this way? What are the things that, that are causing this to happen? Why do I feel the way that I feel? Why am I having the emotional response that I'm having? And for many people, this happens verbally. They like to talk it out. Uh, they like to get with a close friend and, and talk through these things. Or, or maybe it is journaling for you. Maybe it's meditation and you can just do it reflectively in, in, in your internal world. Maybe you've run up against some roadblocks and you need a trained therapist to guide you through some of these emotional responses and where they might be rooted and where that may or may not be uh, rooted in reality. Because sometimes we have reflexive emotional responses to something that aren't rooted in reality. And so this can be very helpful to just do a little bit of a self-assessment, but he doesn't stop there. He doesn't stop with the self-assessment. Then he instructs his soul to put your hope in God. Put your hope in God. He's saying, soul, here's what you need to do. Put your hope in God, not in your feelings. Put your hope in God, not in human beings. Put your hope in God, not in external circumstances changing miraculously. Put your hope in God and praise him. This is called redirection. It's where you identify the emotion, you identify the source of the emotion, and then you redirect the emotion back to God, back to the positive uh, framework or positive uh, mentally, and, and, and you move towards health. You move towards what is good and right, and you remember who and where and what you are to God because there are certain realities of God and who he says you are that are independent of your feelings, whether they feel true or not. The, the song we sang, I am who you say I am. We have to remind ourselves that because if we're not careful, we'll forget that. And when the circumstances change and we're no longer on the mountaintop and now we're in the valley, we can start to question the goodness of God like the, the people uh, around this person are doing. They're saying, where's your God? Why isn't he rescuing you? Why aren't you being saved? Why aren't you being delivered from these circumstances? And we can remind ourselves of certain realities that are completely independent of our feelings in these moments. But it takes training and it takes uh, practice. So our bottom line today comes from verse 5, because we see the psalmist do it, is to feel your feelings, but feed your faith. Feel your feelings, but feed your faith. 
Because one way that we can err in this is to push our feelings aside and, and repress them and bottle them up and never feel them and say, oh, that's a bad feeling. I don't want to feel bad, so I'm not going to feel my bad feeling. I'm going to push it away, and I'm going to pretend to be happy rather than engaging the feeling as the psalmist does, saying, why are you downcast? Working through that, however, whatever form that takes, feeling the feeling, then feeding the faith. Feeding the faith. Because if you're not careful, you'll feed the feeling. You'll feed the feeling and ignore the faith. You'll feed the feeling and allow it to grow bigger and bigger and bigger and consume you unless you feel it. Then feed the faith. Then move back and feed the faith. So we're not ignoring them. We're not stuffing them down. We're not denying the feelings, but we're not feeding them because you're not your feelings. You're not your feelings. Your feelings tell you something about yourself. Your feelings tell you something about your reaction to a certain set of circumstances, but you are not your feelings. And we don't have to over-identify with our feelings. And this is tough because even in our language we do this. You know, if I'm, if I'm mad, I say, I'm mad. Not, I'm feeling angry right now. Nine times out of ten, I'll say, I'm mad about this. Or when we're happy, we do it on the positive side too. We say, I'm happy today. Instead of, I'm feeling happy. And so we over-identify with our feelings sometimes, and that can put us on, a, on an up-and-down roller coaster or yo-yo, and I start to feel like a yo-yo sometimes. And I remember when I was first in counseling, I would say all the time, it's like, man, I'm just riding the roller coaster. I'm up here one minute, and I'm down here the next minute. And we call this swing, right? This is the swing, and psychologists will say you have a really high swing and a really wide or a really long recovery. So... Your baseline is where you are most of the time, but if you have a really high swing, you almost never spend any time at baseline. You just pass through baseline on your way to the next emotional high or low. And so we feel the feelings. We don't ignore them and we don't push them away, but we feed our faith and we make sure that, like the psalmist, we are pointing ourselves back to God. We are putting our hope in him and we are choosing to praise him even in the midst so that we don't over-identify with our feelings. We don't just say, well, that's just the way I am. Because if it's not healthy, you don't want to settle for that's just the way I am. If it's not healthy, you want to say, in Christ I can be this way or this way. And maybe I'll need some help with that. And there's nothing wrong with seeking help to be healthy. When our leg is broken, we go to the doctor and get the leg fixed and they put it in a cast and they make it well. When our mind or our emotions get broken and there's a, something's not working, we can seek out help and find help for those things. In fact, we've got some help available to you if you're parents or just anybody in the room. Next week at Parent Forum, we're going to be talking about depression and restoration and, and how to move from a season of depression into a season of restoration. If you're parents and you have kids, you, this should be on your radar. If you're a grandparent and you have grandkids, this should be on your radar to learn how do we help guide people through emotions in a healthy way, especially where there's so many pressures that, that teenagers especially are, are experiencing on a regular basis and their emotions responses to those. So there's a great resource. We'll have a, a licensed marriage and family therapist here to speak and answer questions. So I really hope if you haven't registered for Parent Forum, there's a card on your seat. You can do that today and you can come back next Sunday and stay after church and have lunch and learn and grow and, uh, and, and be able to respond in a better way. I also want to look at verse 8 um, because verse 8 is, is really important. Uh, it's the reminding yourself on a regular basis. There's over... 
hundred times in Scripture that God says, remember, 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 remember the good things. Just the book of Deuteronomy, as they're about to go into the promised land, he tells them over and over and over again, remember, remember, remember. And in verse 8, the psalmist says, by day the Lord directs his love. At night his song is within me, a prayer to the God of my life. And that's sandwiched between two sort of heavy negative emotions that they're feeling. But in verse 8, he comes up for air and he reminds himself, God's love is ever-present to me, whether I feel it or not, whether I feel it from my circumstances or not, or the person in front of me or not. There are truths about me that by day God directs his love toward me. At night his song is within me. And to me that points us to our daily rhythms, that we start each day or end each day, or better yet, start and end each day in his word, in relationship with him, and go through the day in relationship with him, reacting uh, with him to the various circumstances around us, first in the morning and then at night and clear throughout the day. Verse 9 and 10, I love this. There's no need to sugarcoat our emotional response to God. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Is that true? Has God forgotten him? No, God hasn't forgotten him, but it feels like God has forgotten him. So he takes that feeling to God. He says, why have you forgotten me? Why must I go about mourning, oppressed by the enemy? My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me day after day, where is your God? And sometimes the foes aren't people in front of you. Sometimes the foes are spiritual forces that are against you that want to take you away from God and want to point you in the other direction from God. And sometimes those are your foes that are saying, where's God? Why isn't he helping you? And he finishes, why are you downcast, O my soul? Why so disturbed within me? Put your hope in God, for I will yet praise him, my Savior and my God. And if it sounds familiar, it's because it's exact repetition of verse 5. And I think that points us to the fact that, that repetition is necessary, that there are new forms of thinking and reacting and responding that are necessary. So we feel our feelings and we feed our faith. It's seldom a one-and-done type of a thing, and that feeling pops back up. And maybe you even resolved that you would never respond that way to your spouse or to your kids or to your coworkers again. And then the circumstance comes, and you do, and you just get back up. Remind yourself who God is. Remind yourself who you are, and move on. Put your hope in God. Choose to praise him. So we see this modeled for us very, very powerfully. And as Pastor Zach mentioned just in the welcome, I wanted to point our attention back to Easter. I hope you didn't take the Easter things down and put them in a box and kind of put the resurrection and the resurrection power in a box and get that out next year around March or April. Because as he said, the tomb is still empty. The sun is still reigning on high and we can trust him. Last week, we looked at this idea, this very powerful idea that the resurrection is meant to be the window through which we view all of life, not just for Holy Week, but all 52 weeks a year. We can view life. We can view ourselves. We can view God. We can view every person that we come in contact with through the lens of the resurrection because the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection has power to bring life where things are dead. The resurrection has power to bring hope where there was no hope because the resurrection proves that you can trust God, that he is with you, that he is for you, that he will stop at nothing to reach out to you. Whatever emotional reality you may be feeling at any given time, the tomb is still empty. The resurrection still changes everything. We can put our hope in God, we can praise him, as the psalmist said, because of these realities. 
Now, today is a special day. We get to celebrate a baptism today, and uh, this has become a regular thing around here, and I could not be happier. I could not be happier with that. And I want to encourage you, if, if you've been feeling the nudge, if you've been thinking about being baptized, if you've felt the Spirit saying, you know, uh, maybe that's for you. Uh, there's nothing magical about baptism. Baptism is an act of obedience. It's an act of following after Christ and doing as Christ did. The, the Son of God chose to be baptized. He humbled himself and was baptized by John the Baptist in the River Jordan. He came up out of the water, and the Spirit of God descended on him like a dove, and a voice from heaven came and said, This is my Son whom I love. In him I am well pleased. So we know from Scripture that this is something that Christ did, and we know from experiencing it and participating as part of the crowd watching it, that it is a time when somebody makes a public profession of their faith, and God is glorified in that and through that. So if you've been holding off today, can be the day that you step forward and you respond in faith. And if not, keep coming, keep listening, keep coming back to God, keep reminding yourself who he is and who he says you are. I also want to give you a heads up. We've talked about uh, doing some sort of a, a outdoor baptism service, and people have kind of perked up and thought, ah, with that, yeah, that's what I want to do. Uh, that sounds really interesting. We've set a date for that of June 30th. We're hoping and praying that it won't snow the day before June 30th. Um, and the idea would be to have a picnic after church and go down. Uh, we've looked at a couple different places. If you've got a spot that you know of within 15 minutes or 20 minutes of the church here, uh, let me know about that because we haven't nailed down the location yet. We've got a couple ideas that I think will work pretty well. Um, but if you've got some ideas, we'd love to hear those. And um, we want to get that on your calendar. Save the date for June 30th. It's going to be a special time. There's several people that have indicated that they want to be baptized together as a family in, in, in water, um, outdoors, and maybe that resonates with you. So whatever the case may be, I hope that you will respond in faith to God's word. I hope that you'll dig into the Psalms in the next week and that you'll dig into some of the emotions that keep popping up, especially if you tend to react rather than respond and that you'll take that to God and wrestle through that and, and we'll continue to work through specific emotions going forward from here. But for now, would you bow with me as we pray and as we respond in faith? If you do want to be baptized today, I'm going to go back by that door and I'll be there for about the first half of the song. Just come and find me. We can have a little conversation. Um, if, if not, uh, why don't we stand to our feet as we pray and as we respond to God? Heavenly Father, we thank you we thank you for the wisdom of the Psalms. We thank you for uh, the way that you invite all of us, all of our feelings, all of our emotions, everything that we are to come to you and to experience grace in your presence and to experience healing and to experience everything that you have for us, God. I pray for each and every one here today, Lord, whether we, whether we struggle with emotions or whether we usually are pretty, pretty okay with emotions, uh, God, help us to feel our feelings and to feed our faith. Help us to fix our eyes on you. Help us, God, to, to put our hope and our trust in you. And help us to praise you now. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.